Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. All of those things that were supposed to be the story this year were not. The question is, do those actual rotations start to take hold in the year ahead? Let's start that conversation now with Patrick Armstrong, Chief Investment Officer at Plurimi Wealth. Patrick, good to catch up with you, sir. The things that are set to come under pressure into 22, Patrick, what pockets of this market are you avoiding? Um, I think it's not going to be a year where you want to try to get rich. I think uh, for the last three years, we've had massive liquidity in the system. We've had central banks buying bonds, trillions of bonds, and it's uh, going to be an environment where liquidity is slowly taken out of the system. And I think um, the meme stocks, the high growth, no earning stocks, those types of story stocks, they've come under pressure since November. And I think that's going to continue. I think if you're making an investment for 2022, you want to have a valuation thesis, at least. You have to understand that this company is generating cash flow, generating earnings, and it's not ruling out all tech companies. But I think the companies that are at the most extreme multiples, that they're going to be category killers, but that's five years out, I think those are going to come under pressure as liquidity gets removed from the system. But what about the other tech companies that some may put in the kind of quality basket, Patrick, the likes of Apple, which is approaching $3 trillion in valuation that are consistently strong earnings growers? To bet against the U.S., and I know you're underweight the U.S., are you also saying that you expect some of those large heavyweights to start lagging? Where I've got my U.S. exposure is those large heavyweights. So I'm very okay. comfortable with Apple. We actually sold Apple earlier in the year in February, which is, uh, looked like good timing. We did it just before their earnings, but we bought it again about a month ago. So I'm back into Apple. I own uh, Meta. I own Alphabet. Um, so my U.S. exposure is underweight versus the MSCI world weight, but I'm taking it with the big cap tech companies because just their cash flow is enormous. Their multiples aren't cheap but totally defendable, a 30 times multiple or 30 times earnings for the kind of growth and profit margin they generate, I totally can justify. So I feel comfortable to own them. But there's many industries where like for like, um, stocks just trade at 30 to 50% premium if they're listed in the United States versus if they're listed in Japan or if they are listed in Europe. So the other more traditional sectors that aren't tech oriented is where I'm overweight to other countries. Yeah, I was just gonna ask, I mean, uh, I'm sure you're not betting against the United States, but really on mm-hmm. uh, other countries where you see undervalued assets. Where is that? Well, the co- I've been talking about it for a year, and the companies have performed incredibly well. And I think every time I've been on your show for the last 15 months or so, I talk about Moeller Maersk, Hapag Lloyd, and I, I don't get my head around. They're trading at four times earnings. How negative do things have to get for shipping rates to really make it be a four times earnings on Moeller Maersk? So it's probably up 60% this year, but earnings are growing as fast as the share price is growing, and it's just incredibly cheap. ArcelorMittal, um, I do think infrastructure spend is going to happen in the United States. I think Europe's going to get around to infrastructure spend. Japan's doing it as well. I think steel is very cheap. Company like this is trading at six times earnings. So there's companies that are domiciled in Europe 
They're global companies benefiting from the global recovery, but they're just trading at very low multiples, and they actually have very high earnings growth potential, in my opinion. Patrick, of those companies, the likes of Molomask, some of the miners, some of the energy players would have seen huge demand for their goods, and the underlying product or service has seen a great gain in price. Have you seen the corresponding discipline when it comes to building out capacity, Patrick? Because that's been the worry of what's happening in the shipping industry in a previous few decades, what's happened in mining and energy in the previous few decades as well. Is that what's different this time around, Patrick, into 22, that they haven't made those big calls, those big investments into capacity that could haunt them in years to come? They haven't. They're producing tons of cash flow. So it's always a risk when a CEO's got so much cash, doesn't know what to do with it, expanding, investing, assuming that uh, these profits and uh, freight rates will stay where they are. Um, none of the CEOs are talking like that. There's none of the hubris about this is going to last forever. They know this is a cyclical windfall that they're really monetizing. I think it'll probably lead to some consolidation in the industry, which uh, may streamline capacity. It'll give more pricing power. And I think those kind of expenditures make sense. You can preserve uh, your profit margins with that. I don't think a big, massive build-out um, is what any CEO is talking about of new shipping. Um, so they're being built, but these take years of lead time as well. Patrick, I noticed as well, you say you want to own volatility in the year ahead. Why and how specifically? Well, QE, what it does, it's unclear. No one knows unequivocally what QE does for the economy. It probably gives it a boost. It gives some confidence. When times are very scary, QE basically brings out some animal spirits and provokes some investment. But what it does 100% is it suppresses volatility. And as QE gets removed, the market forces will just be allowed to react to scary things that happen. When uh, something happens in the past, you used to get a sell-off. It'd be a buying opportunity. Over the last few years, buying opportunities last in the spans of days rather than months. So I, I do think there'll be some sell-offs that maybe will last a few months where you get a, a official correction and uh, some things then get too cheap and that provokes some buyers. But there won't be the wall of money chasing every single sell-off. And I think... Um, when you can have dips, that's the definition of volatility. And I don't think those will be suppressed as much as QE gets removed in the first uh, quarter of next year. Patrick, I just want to build on what you think will spark the disruption. What we saw in the previous cycle, what we saw was ultimately no real disruption until real rates got through positive 1%, until we actually started to see some balance sheet reduction and not just the unwind of QE and net purchases, Patrick. Are you saying that could happen this time around before we get to those kind of points? Well, they're bound to be before we get to this kind of points. But the thing that's kept me in equities, it's, there's three pillars, and thank God I, I look at them because uh, I worry about valuations. And uh, the S&P 500 is at 3.5 times sales. It's never been higher than it is today. But massive liquidity, negative real yields, and earnings growth, while those pillars remain in place, I think equities do move higher. Um, I don't think we need real yields at 1% to provoke a correction. But if we get down to less than half a percent negative real yields, where the outlook for treasuries is moving higher, I think that'll provoke some multiple contractions and I do think it'll be the highest growth companies um, with the most extreme multiples that are impacted the most uh, companies that are trading at 30 times earnings very expensive but you can see how those big tech big cap tech companies grow their way into those multiples so offsetting a multiple contraction with earnings growth and Patrick before you run just let me squeeze this one in you brought up AP Moller Mask a company I used to follow really closely when I was doing some work out of London of course that company out of Denmark Guy Johnson and I used to talk about this all the time I'm not a big fan of stock splits but of all the names Patrick in Europe does that company need one given what it's trading at right now 
Um, yeah, it uh, precludes retail investing. Europe isn't as much of a retail investor market anyway as in America, so I don't know if it would incrementally create demand. But yes, um, definitely that must uh, open up uh, the shareholder or the potential shareholder base. Patrick, thank you, sir. Good to catch up. Patrick Armstrong there, Plurimi. Let's bring in Dr. Amish Adalja now, the senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for House Security. Doctor, let's start right here, and I think this is so, so important. Have we just taken a big step towards normalizing how we treat this virus, towards getting back to normal? I do think that the CDC revised guidance, which was based on science, based on what we've learned about this virus, does give us some sense of normalcy, because what you're seeing is that this is a less disruptive event to get COVID-19 when it's mild, when the symptoms have abated. And we're making that isolation period something that people can more easily cope with within their lives, and we're doing it in a safe manner. It's important to remember that this one-size-fits-all 10 days that have been in place for so long didn't really apply to everybody because many people were becoming not contagious earlier in that time period. So I think this is more precision-guided. I think it, it's going to be something that people are find, will find much easier to cope with when they do get these mild breakthrough infections that are going to become ubiquitous. Well, Dr. Adalja, obviously, to even understand that you have a positive case and need to isolate, you need to have a test. And in some cases, you need to have a test to stop isolation and return to your office, for example. Yet testing just doesn't seem to be easily accessible. How does that problem get solved? This is going to take a full concerted effort by the federal government to incentivize companies to make tests, to make it easier to get these tests on the market. We know we only have a handful that have passed through an onerous FDA regulation process. And I think we have to make these cheaper because $25 for two tests is out of most people's reach. And this is all a result of the fact that tests have always been undervalued, that we really never had a robust home testing program in place during the Trump administration. It started during the Biden administration, but it's been very stulted and flawed and, and not really optimized. So, so this is going to be the key part of how we move through this pandemic. As we normalize this, as people want to be able to navigate a life with COVID-19 as, as being an ever-present issue that they have to deal with, they need these tests. And I think we can't wait until the federal government solves this problem over time. It has to be done now. And I think that this is something that Europe has done very well, but in the U.S. it's just not been something that had been prioritized because everybody assumed more people would be vaccinated and that just didn't happen and we're still stuck in this limbo. Have we learned now that we can't vaccinate our way out of this, that you need more more than one weapon in this war? Is, or are we just still putting too much emphasis on that in particular? The vaccines are the best tool that we have by far because they remove the ability of the virus to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. So that has to be the key component of our response. But not everybody's going to get vaccinated, as we've seen. And tests are one way, especially with a contagious variant like Omicron that can get around vaccine-induced protection and cause mild infections. Tests are going to be almost equally important because people need to know their status. Many organizations want don't want to have any tolerance of cases in their in inside their workplace, for example, or at their event. So this is something that needs to be done in order for the, the country to kind of move forward. Even if all of these cases are mild, there's still not a risk tolerance to have these mild cases. And you still have hospitals that are under stress from Delta patients and now some Omicron patients. That's going to be the key thing. So until we get to that point that this is treated completely like another respiratory virus, tests are going to be something that people want to do very frequently, and, it, and it's, a, it's still a major mess. 
How soon do we get there, Amish? Because um, you mentioned that you expect this to become, these breakthrough mild cases have become ubiquitous, meaning pretty much everyone is going to get it. And it seems like, you know, with 1.4 million new cases yesterday, that's going to be fairly soon. We're not fighting the Spanish flu anymore, even though we still get the Spanish flu and it's one of the biggest killers. Um, it's just so common. Is that what this is going to become? Yes, this is going to go the way of the other four coronaviruses that cause about 25% of our common colds. So this is going to be something that everybody gets. It probably They'll probably get it multiple times, but it's going to be a tamer version because our immune systems are going to be trained to respond through vaccines and prior infections. We're going to have tools like antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, and rapid tests so people can know what their status is so they don't infect other people. So yes, we probably will get away from these these public health these public health regulations and more towards an individual based way of of dealing with this the problem is we still have hospitals in the united states and around the world where there are still issues with capacity and that's the the key pivot point for me is when we remove the ability of, of COVID-19 to cause hospital capacity concerns. And that is the case in many parts of the country, but there are still areas in the country, specific regions with low vaccination rates where they're still at risk for too many people with conditions that put them at need for hospitalization that are unvaccinated that can crush a hospital. That's the, the point where we kind of move fully to endemicities when we're not seeing hospitals report uh, over 100% bed capacity in the ICU for multiple days, for example. So when do we get there? I mean, we have we had that in the past with flu seasons that were really bad. Um, some hospitals get overcrowded. Do we do we end up next Christmas in a situation um, the likes of which we would have seen in bad flu seasons 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Hopefully that will be the case. Right now it's it's still worse than influenza seasons, even the worst of our influenza seasons in many parts of the country. That has to be what 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 changes. So probably by the end, by next winter, a year from now, we should be at that phase in the United States and many of the developed countries uh, that, that this becomes handled more like influenza. But I still think it's going to have a bigger burden than influenza for some time because of the attack rate, how many people get infected. And it seems on a pound for pound basis to be worse than uh, seasonal influenza when it comes to mortality. But that will all adapt over time. And obviously, new variants can come and change that prediction that might move faster or slower. But I think we're still looking uh, at next flu season, next flu and respiratory virus season being probably closer to our baseline, but still probably a little bit more in, intense than, than usual, but hopefully manageable. Amish, thank you for all that you do. I know you were busy over the Christmas weekend as well. We appreciate it, sir, for everything you've done and for us this year as well. We'll catch up soon. Dr. Amish Adownja there. Matt, you said it, that CDC decision, for some people at least, including you, and for me to some degree, a bullish call. Yeah, absolutely, because of the uh, problems businesses have had with employees being out for a full 10 days, at least 10 days after testing positive. They've had to shut down services. Some companies have had to shut down production. Some companies have shut down retail outlets. If they can reduce that to five days, and the CDC now says that you can as long as you're asymptomatic, um, that obviously opens up a chance for them to do more business and raise revenue uh, profit as well. And maybe to some extent makes it easier to forecast this economy into 22. Let's do that right now with John Riding, the chief economic advisor at Breen Capital and a good friend of this program for a long, long time. John, it's good to see you, buddy, as always. Let's start with the call for next year, John. What are you focused on? 
Well, I think the main focus is the inflation story. And this was a story that as early as April of last year, we warned that we were going to have an inflation event, not a disinflation or deflation event, because it would negatively, it, it being the, the virus and the government uh, mesh, lockdown measures, would negatively hit the supply side. Now, the supply chains have been hit harder, uh, more prolonged than I think uh, that we imagine. Uh, and on the other side, we're going to get massive demand stimulus that was monetary financed. And we've certainly had that. And uh, uh, as a result, the combination has been a far more elevated inflation rate uh, than anyone expected, uh, almost 7%, may well be 7% when the December data uh, come in. So the question is, how much does that inflation rate moderate? And what is the policy response? Because I just don't believe that, that inflation is going to wind itself down to 2% without little action uh, from the Fed. I think inflation expectations are getting embedded. The, your uh, previous guest talking about all those pressures on the airline industry uh, was just an example of the, of the cost pressures uh, that companies are able to uh, pass along in this environment. So I think the inflation story is the first one. I think the inflation rate is going to be close to 4%. And the Fed's going to end up taking more steps as it signaled uh, at the last meeting uh, with its uh, dot plot uh, than uh, people uh, have been expecting. A couple of things there, John, then. The scale of deceleration on headline inflation. You're looking for seven potential to close out the year into next year and the policy response that would shape that move lower. John, let's build on that. The expectation now for many people is three heights next year. Does that do anything, John? Does that achieve anything? Well, I think it starts off as a signal. And I think the key thing was for the Fed to recognize the problem. I don't think the Fed fully recognized the problem at uh, Chair Powell's last press conference, but I think it went some way to recognizing the problem by getting rid of the transitory language, putting in three hikes that were supported by 13 members uh, of the committee, as opposed to the one hike that was at the, uh, in the uh, last uh, dot plot back in September, uh, which was basically a, a split decision with as many people looking for one hike as looking for no move at all. So it is an important signal. And I think the really good thing would be if that move came in March. The asset uh, wind down of the asset purchases uh, ends in mid-March. Uh, the next decision day, I think, is March 16th. So if the Fed were to raise rates uh, on March 16th, it would be a signal. And then the next signal will be start letting the balance sheet run off and perhaps do mm -hmm. that as soon as June of next year. Will that be enough? Probably not. But it is important that we, the Fed recognizes the problem and starts to take steps. And then that makes companies begin to think, should price increases, which I fear is becoming the case, uh, not be part of our uh, process for making profits? Because we're in an environment right now where we've got cost pressures, but pr companies are raising prices by even more than the costs are going up, perhaps using the cover of costs, and widening profit margins. And that's relatively unusual. That's certainly different from the profit, from the inflation environment that we had in the 1970s. So I think those signals are very important to start reframing the decision-making process. But no, by itself, I think there's going to be more rate hikes uh, into uh, 2023 uh, and more, I think, than are being signaled by the dot plot. Um, mm -hmm. 
But on the other side, the economy is still going to be rolling along because there's so many supply constraints. So higher rates aren't going to hurt the economy. We've got so much excess demand in the system. Taking some demand out isn't going to slow growth. It isn't going to create uh, any slack in the labor market. There's just simply plenty of jobs out there. Okay. Uh, and all of this COVID protocols are making it harder and harder uh, to uh, fill those positions. So is what you're saying essentially, John, that the Fed is likely going to have to move more aggressively, but it's not going to amount to a policy mistake of some kind? Um, I, the policy mistake's been made, and the policy mm. mistake was keeping the emergency measures in place for too long. There was no need to have continued purchasing at $120 billion a month almost through to the end of uh, this year. They, you know, they only started that uh, wind-down adjustment uh, in November. Uh, so that was one policy mistake. There was, the Fed could have signaled uh, that inflation wasn't going to be transitory, or they weren't going to let it be anything other than transitory uh, by uh, by recognizing the problem. But I think th th there was some mischaracterization of the inflation problem, a lot of focus on reopening, yeah. a lot of focus on a handful of items, even as all the data showed that it was broadening out and the inflation pressures have broadened out. Uh, and you can't talk down this inflation problem. You know, a, a credible Fed has to talk against the inflation problem, take action against the inflation problem. Well, John, Matt brought up the great point earlier around the timing of Powell changing his message in re messaging, retiring the word transitory and the president renominating him for a second term at the Federal Reserve. The president still, though, has several more nominations to make, seats that need to be filled. Do you think who sits in them could shift the balance of policy going forward? It could, and it could shift the balance to the detriment uh, of the outlook, and it could shift the balance to the detriment of this administration. There's this false belief that somehow having dovish members of the committee, by dovish I mean less inclined to raise interest rates or to be more focused on things other than inflation, uh, somehow helps the administration. And, and, and that's just a, a, a false choice. What we need are people who have some experience with inflation some strong academic background uh, on the inflation front. Um, we need strong people uh, on financial regulation because the other problem is going to be with, especially mm. the uh, chair of the vice chair for financial supervision open, is going to be the potential impact on the markets of unwinding all this accommodation, which has been in place too long. So yes, good John. choices could certainly help this and push the Fed along, bad choices could make the inflation problem worse, and that will hurt the administration. It will not help the administration, nor will it help the economic outlook. I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point, an important point, John, with regards to experience. And you're obviously a sprightly young man on the football pitch, but you were around during the 1980s when we saw real inflation. You were advising the Bank of England. You were advising um, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. What can the Fed do other than simply raise rates in order to fight inflation? It's about signaling, and it's about seeing what your priorities are, uh, as well as taking action. And an important signal will be starting to wind down this balance sheet. Uh, now, my preferred outcome, which is not going to happen, is the Fed actually starts selling assets. The Fed's not going to do that, but they could wind down somewhere between a trillion and a trillion and a half dollars simply by stopping reinvesting mm -hmm. uh, and putting uh, relatively uh, 
high caps to that uh, uh, runoff each month. And that would be an important signal. But it's really is about, it really is about the signaling and um, uh, to back up the rate actions so that all the, in, we've heard what are the instruments of policy the Fed has, asset purchases, rates, and uh, forward guidance. So put all of those into uh, action. And if the Fed were to talk about asset sales as opposed to asset runoff, that would be a real tiny move. But I, I think taking action on the balance sheet in June, which I think could happen, uh, would, be, would be a strong signal. But it's, it, once the inflation gene is out of the bottle and it's getting out of the bottle, it just doesn't uh, easily... Uh, go back in again to uh, uh, for those of you, John, who may have seen Christmas pantomimes when you were a kid. That the you know the the, the, the uh, uh, getting the genie back in the bottle very uh, very difficult trick. I used to hate them, John. He's behind you. <laughs> that reference is lost on everyone in America, John. Just quickly, you said something there so important, and I think we can sort of think about this without the noise of the market on a week like this. You said they should sell assets. Can you imagine, John, what would happen if they sold assets? Like, John, what do you think would happen in financial markets well, if they said, we're not just going to end reinvestment, we're going to sell? Well, I, I think that, if, especially if they were to say, let's sell the mortgage assets because we really want a treasury-only portfolio or sell and partially reinvest in treasuries. That, that would be like more like a capital market decision. But I think the key thing is, telling the markets in advance, guiding the markets to, to that. But it, it, what, what would happen? It would tighten financial conditions. And the Fed's trying to sort of pull off this impossible scenario of tightening policy without tightening financial conditions. Yeah. And that's not possible. It, it's like trying to make an omelet without breaking eggs, to use the, uh, um, the well-worn uh, analogy. Financial conditions will have to be tightened, and selling would tighten them uh, a lot more. But look, it's not going to happen. I, I think one thing we can count on the Fed's not going to do, the best we can hope for is an early end to reinvestments. And if the Fed were to hike rates in March and to allow assets to start to run off in May or June, as uh, I think some on the FOMC uh, want to do so, uh, Governor Waller has been uh, very clear on wanting to allow uh, assets to uh, run off fairly quickly after the Fed starts hiking rates. I think that would be... Um, a good step in the right direction to tackling the inflation problem. But let's be clear, even under the best policy for fighting inflation, we're still going to have an elevated inflation rate in 2023 and possibly even into uh, 2024. John, just quickly, uh, Tom Keane writes in, ask John on Preston North End and Stoke on January 3rd. Anything we should know, well, John? Well, let's let, let's hope the game goes ahead. I mean, the key thing is that all the games that I cared about were cancelled on Boxing Day, which is December 26th. Those of you who like John and I, don't have them. Your beloved Preston, John Riding, a Merry Christmas to you, sir. It's good to catch up. John Riding there of Bring Capital. with an equity market at all-time highs and a bit of trouble down in D.C. for the President of the United States. Joining us now on that is Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Wendy, let's just start there. The President in the last 24 hours saying there is no federal solution. In many ways, that states the obvious when it comes to COVID-19 and coronavirus. But do you think he's lost control of the messaging in a way that he thought he would have control over it when he ran to become President of the United States? Yeah, Jonathan, in some ways, he's just right back where he started when he first was inaugurated, right? Dealing with 
uh, a lot of holidays surging on COVID, uh, and the vast majority of Americans were not yet vaccinated. And they were told, look, go get vaccinated and things will get back to normal or at least as close to normal as possible. And the vast majority of Americans did get vaccinated. Uh, many, many millions have not yet done it, which is part of the problem. But nonetheless, Mother Nature is a very powerful force. And though here we are a year later and it just feels like deja vu. And I think that's just a really big problem for the Biden administration, which has been doing a lot of things successfully, actually. They've just stomped on their own messaging with the failure of Build Back Better. And then Build Back Better is about more government. And when voters look at government now, they think, well, you're failing us. You're failing us on COVID. You're failing us on testing. You're failing us on care. You know, why would we give you an opportunity to do more when it looks to us like you can't do what you're supposed to do now? Well, Wendy, the president yesterday said there is no federal solution. This gets solved at a state level. Is that the president trying to shuck some of the political blame away from himself? Or is this a president who's just not adequately adequately responding to a national challenge? Well, I think when we're in crisis, voters don't want to hear blaming on somebody else, even if there are realities where you have governors like the governor of Florida who's actively trying to prevent mask mandates, prevent vaccine requirements in private businesses, uh, penalize people for trying to take uh, safety measures. You know, he's very popular in Florida, but that doesn't help. The problem is that, you know, that's not just, that's only one state out of 50. And then, you know, blaming the voter or blaming the person who's not getting vaccinated, that just causes more division. I think it makes communication and messaging to those people harder. I think the issue will be public health. Does the government have the right to do what it has to do, as you're seeing in New York City with the mayor of New York City or President Biden, to mandate vaccines? And the idea of mandate being a sort of unattractive thing to a lot of Americans, we're about to find out whether the Supreme Court allows the government to tell larger businesses what to do. This is going to be a big issue, and this is going to be a turning point in the 21st century for all of America. You know, will we make these sacrifices? Will we allow the government to, to issue these mandates? And just not clear that's going to happen yet. Yeah, we'll see how those arguments go when the Supreme Court hears them in less than two weeks' time. Wendy, do you think that COVID-19 is the president's biggest political headache right now, or is it something else? No, I mean, I think it's it's twofold. It's COVID-19. It's obviously existing polarization and division in the country that he inherited, essentially. And it's also still the fractures in his own party. You know, if he could come out of the gate, now he's not going to have, you know, for the State of the Union, it'll be about COVID. It won't be about what can we do next. He's got to line up Democrats, you know, at least 23, I believe, have now announced uh, that they're retiring. So he's, he's looking at a pretty lost majority, probably, for 2022 and beyond and after the election. He's got to figure out a simple thing that he wants that he can get from his own majority party. And they've got to figure that out, too. That's another headache. But things like making life easier for people who struggle during COVID, like child care, for example, that is likely to be popular among voters who are coming out of a very difficult economic situation and a stressful situation with the pandemic. Think small, think targeted, think what you can accomplish and get that done. You know, we talked to Mohammed Yunus yesterday from Gallup, and he pointed out that the president's approval ratings have been low since the fall of Kabul and, and haven't changed much since then. But in the meantime, we've seen inflation really ramp up. And of course, his critics blame that on uh, President Biden. How important is the resurgence of inflation and what can the president do about it? Well, it all goes to the same sort of sense of 
um, misery uh, on the part of the average citizen. You go to the shelves, you can't find things that you need that you normally can. You, it's hard to get a new car. It's hard to get a used car. It's hard to get a dishwasher. It's hard to get things that Americans are used to getting relatively easily. And now, of course, that's transferred to home testing for COVID. So it's all about we can't even live the lives we want to live. Uh, and inflation's part of that, but it's all going to the fact that it seems as though things are out of control and that the government can't get them back in control. And inflation has become one of another thing uh, that's really fueling this sense yeah. of frustration among Wendy, citizens. This is delicate, and I want to finish here with you because I think you're the perfect guest to cover it with me. There's something about the attitude sometimes in the administration where they kind of miss the moment. I remember when the press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about home testing and basically why haven't we got home testing? Why can't we do what the UK does, which is basically send a message and you get some the following morning? And she turned around and said, what would you like us to do? Send one to every American. And that's exactly what they're going to try and do now. Do you think they need to adjust a little bit, just less of the snark, less of the attitude, actually start listening? Well, I think at least they have to appear to be listening. Uh, and I know we're a little bit short on time. I can go a long time on the political malpractice of very experienced politicians who are in the White House now. The president's going to have to shake his staff up. That's what Clinton had to do many years ago. Uh, Biden did it. Uh, I'm sorry, Obama did it a little bit later into his term. you got to shake it up. If the staff that you have now are not serving you well and you are having messaging issues, you're having government competence issues, at least the appearance of them, you got to make a change. You've got to get people in who are, are better attuned to this and who can pivot not only uh, the people under the president, but the president himself to learn how to really focus on the things that people are caring about in their, da in their daily lives, yeah. whether it's policy or it's COVID, and make that the only message you are conveying for the next three to six months. Wendy, thank you. As always, Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. Looking forward to catching up again soon. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.